In 2019, a national children's charity created a mock online store selling the essential stab-proof vest for children aged 11 to 18. The campaign was designed to raise awareness about youth violence and highlight young people's fears about crime. However, by sensationalizing, fueling stereotypes and enhancing fear, this type of campaign can serve to exacerbate rather than help solve this urgent problem. I'm Jess Miles, and in this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, I'm speaking to Luke Billingham and Keir Irwin-Rogers, both at the Open University. In their book, Against Youth Violence, they talk about how damaging some of our responses can be and offer a new way of making sense of the issue by putting it in the context of social harm. So this is just one part of the book, but because it's an area in which we can all make change, this is what we're going to focus on today. Hi, Luke. Hi, Keir. Hello. Hi, thank you for speaking to me today. So let's start by giving some context. What's the extent of the violence affecting children and young people in Britain right now? Hi, thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. And I think that's a really good opening question. Um, it's why we dedicated the entire first chapter of our book to this very issue, uh, looking at the nature and scale of violence in children and young people's lives. I think the very short answer is that there's too much violence in, in children and young people's lives, but it's often kind of the actual scale and the types of violence are often um, kind of misperceived because of the uh, sources where people get their information from, politician statements, media discourse, um, even things like film and dramas. Mm. And I think, so there are many misconceptions about the type and scale of violence in young people's lives. So where I'd start, I think, I'd probably say three things because there are many things I could say and it's all in the book in meticulous detail, but let me let me pick out three key things. So one is in acknowledging that the vast majority of violence actually is committed not by children, um, but by adults. And, and that's an interesting one because I think we often think of young people as like a violent generational mass because of media discourse and because of this, this issue around gangs and, and knife crime. But when you look at the data, if you look at the data from the Crime Survey for England and Wales, actually most violence is committed by people over the age of 25. And I think that's an interesting one that people are often surprised about. Um, so, when, so when we're talking about young people here, we're talking 24 and under, aren't we? Yeah, we yeah. try and use that as a, as a rough definition. So okay. um, young people we, we conceive as under the age of 24 and then children, I think, for the purposes of the book is under the age of 12. But we often right. just use young people as a generic form uh, label for, for both of those. Um, the second thing to say is when you look at violence committed by young people themselves, again, it affects the, only a very tiny fraction of young people. Um, so if you look at the most serious violence, I mean, like homicide, that's affecting only, I think when we looked at the London stats, it's like 0.008% of, of young people are proceeded against for something like homicide, so a tiny, tiny fraction. And even when you look at violence um, that is less severe, so something like violence with injury, it's still only a couple of percent of um, the overall population of young people. So in other words, the vast majority of young people do not commit acts of serious violence. And I think that's also an important point to make. Mm. It's not a reason to be complacent because there are still many thousands and in fact, tens of thousands of acts of serious violence between young people that have devastating consequences, both for the people involved and for families and communities. And, and that's why the book was written. So we can take that violence seriously. And so we can uh, respond in an appropriate way that creates safer societies. But it's really, really important not to sensationalise that violence. Um, then I'd say the third thing, and it's interesting because of the way the actual question was phrased, you use the term violence affecting young people. I think that's an important mm. one because um, that brings into play all of the violence that affects young people is actually committed by adults, not children and young people. Um, and that's something that we pick up later on in the book um, in the chapters on social harm. So I won't, I won't go into it too much now, but 
children and young people experience huge amounts of violence in the home, um, either committed uh, directly against themselves by um, parents or carers, or they witness it between um, adults, and that can have highly damaging consequences too. Um, so I'd make those three points, I think, to that question. But um, there's a there's a great deal more we could go into. Um, but as yeah. I say, it's all in, all in chapter one of the book, where all the stats and graphs and and, and uh, data is discussed uh, in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, the terminology is important, isn't it? Because um, the it's the phrase youth violence that's problematic in some ways. And so I've tried in the podcast questions mm. to not use that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, Luke, why? do we respond to this in the way that we do i think i think there's lots of reasons for that um and and i think some of the big problems are firstly missing those facts that Keir laid out so i think there is a lot of exaggeration there's a lot of sensationalism um there's a lot of a, a, a desire to kind of get clicks or get views or attract audiences to how you're describing the the issue rather mm-hmm. than co- conveying the kind of nu- nuanced truth of it um i think there's a lot of accounts of violence there are too many which present it in a highly decontextualized way so kind of present things as if violence is just the product of individual malice or some kind of collective barbarism right see the, the word gang is very overused and underspecified and used in often racist ways that has very mm. serious consequences, particularly in, in courtrooms. And I think there's a kind of general demonization of young people as if violence is a kind of self-generated property of young people or of some kind of ill-defined youth culture, which is entirely kind of factually incorrect given what, what Keir said. I think obviously there are accounts of the issue which are much more sophisticated and more on, and more nuanced, this is it's worth saying. But I think potentially the most damaging misleading form of account of violence between young people is accounts which omit and which don't discuss what the criminologist Elliot Curry is called the social conditions that predictably breed violence because yeah. there are there are certain features of our society our policies our systems our institutions which make violence more likely on a kind of predictable systemic level um, and I think it's important to kind of lay those out like we do in the book to kind of contextualize things around a third of children and young people are growing up in poverty where i'm from where i work as a youth worker in hackney is 46 percent. the joseph roundtree foundation had to come up with a new concept deep poverty to describe what a lot of young people are experiencing because of how entrenched it is so they've got... had to create a whole nother level to define yeah. it yeah they've, they've cre- cut... because 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 of the extent to which it's entrenched and and the extent of its effects on children and young people and families yeah and the inequality in our country is so bad that the financial times recently concluded that essentially britain is a poor society that happens to have a few ludicrously wealthy people in it so our kind of average wealth is distorted by the ludicrous wealth of a very tiny number of people and just those two things alone the poverty and inequality if, if you add in the kind of myth of meritocracy that seems to still abound in this country that people get their just desserts that causes an immense sense of diminishment, shame, frustration, powerlessness, insignificance mm-hmm. among far too many people. And then mm-hmm. other things that we mentioned in the book that I'll just rattle through to give a, a give a picture of this. We've got a counterproductive prohibitionist drug policy, which generates yeah. seven billion pound illegal industry in drugs, which involves a lot of exploitation of young people. We've got private children's homes that are owned by private equity firms to make profit which have utterly inadequate safeguarding arrangements feeding into that exploitation. 
In some cases, we've got alternative provision schools for kids excluded from school, which aren't much better than those children's homes. Mainstream schools underfunded, too often exclusionary, not meeting students' additional needs, too often institutionally racist. Mental health services for young people creaking, youth services decimated, children's social care overwhelmed. We've got prisons for young people that are entirely dysfunctional by any measure, making things worse. And they're mm -hmm. just a particularly bad feature of an ineffective criminal justice system more generally. We've got masses of precarious, exploitative forms of work, especially for young people. And we've got hundreds and thousands of children and young people growing up in temporary accommodation or overcrowded conditions. And it it took me, what, maybe a couple of minutes to list off those yeah. facts. But all too often, these conditions, which produce in many communities the kinds of social norms and the kinds of psychological tension which we know make violence more likely mm. too often they're ignored in accounts or just just one of them is focused on simplistically the important point is that all of those factors cumulatively in individuals lives or in communities create a kinds of condition which make the perpetration of violence much much more likely and those are the things that need to change yeah but by talking about youth violence in the way we do and it being reported in the way it is and how we take that information in, it becomes an individual thing, doesn't it? And then we can conveniently ignore that long, long, long list that you've just been through. And I thought it was important in the book when you that you talk a bit about how who benefits from this and like everything It's who benefits from this status quo. And I think it's quite obvious, isn't it? Um, I think it would be helpful, um, as well as that charity campaign I mentioned in the introduction, it would be helpful if you could give us some more examples from the media or popular culture that kind of feed into this and create that distraction. I think the gang discourse in particular is really problematic um, for the reasons Luke gave and, and also just because em empirically it's just not overly accurate that the vast majority of violence isn't committed by gangs even if you kind of accept that discourse and way of talking and categorizing young people if you look at something like the Met statistics um, where you know gang problems are arguably at their highest in the big metropolitan centres in London in particular most violence is not flagged as gang related so to, to kind of give this idea that that, that problem um, of violence in young people is, is all to do with gangs is, is really empirically inaccurate, as well as highly problematic for the reasons Luke gave about it being a racialised concept. So what, um, what we're talking about is a media article that talks about a child being stabbed and they'll use mm -hmm. the word gang, mm -hmm. but probably possibly without any evidence that it was gang related at all. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think it's it's, it's often overstated. So for one and this is a point we make in the book even if a young person is involved in a gang just because they commit an act of violence or a, or a victim of violence it doesn't mean that that particular act of violence was was because of the result of their gang affiliation so right. there's, there's lots of violence that's committed because of um, particular instances of disrespect you know minor or what we would consider to be relatively trivial instances of disrespect that have escalated and it had nothing to do with the fact that a young person was um uh, gang involved you know it wasn't it wasn't gang rivalry that caused that instance of violence so i think we can overstate the influence of gangs in that way but the, the other point is just that most violence that is committed is not gang related um but we get the impression that there's more gang related crime than there is because we often see it in the media yeah so the, the media when they when we have an instance of gang related violence it's very much front and center on the media pages and on political statements because it's a very sensationalist it's a very attractive thing for media to um put into their uh you know online stories or their papers because people want to read about it people are attracted to read about that kind of violence do you think um film and television feeds into it too 
yeah i think that the kind of the same can be said i mean people have a fixation for violence more generally i think you see a lot of violence on screen and in film um, mm. and violence committed by young people and gang related violence in particular just seem to have a particular attraction i think yeah. to audiences um and, and it's the, the problem is when you kind of generalize from those relatively small number of cases to, to perceive there to be a really widespread problem um, mm. when in fact it's confined to a very very small number of young people yeah yeah um but the, the, the other thing i would have said in, in relation to that question about more examples of um media or popular culture that, that fuel the way that we respond to it. I think I think generally because you mentioned the campaign in your opening introduction, which I think was really important, the one where the it was a particular charity that was promoting the you know stab vests for young people as a kind of marketing gimmick. I do think actually awareness campaigns more generally are also problematic. Um, and that's because I guess for two reasons. One is that they they have the potential to raise levels of fear amongst young people. So if you go around telling young people that, you know, youth violence is a major problem and that there are lots of young people carrying knives, if you're a young person and you're listening to that, that's going to make you more fearful and more anxious. And we know that that's one of the predictors of why young people carry knives themselves. So really the kind of message we want to be giving to young people is one of hope and one of safety and one of, you know, a good society that they're growing up in. And, and, kind of awareness campaigns in general do have the potential to to kind of go against that but the, but the other issue i think with it is that it as luke was saying it kind of strips away all of the the kind of social harms in young people's lives that are necessary to be dealt with if we want to reduce violence it kind of almost responsibilizes young people yeah. for dealing with violence themselves it's yeah. saying you know if only you just didn't carry knives and if only you weren't violent towards one another everything would be fine when in fact we haven't dealt with all those many issues i won't i won't repeat them because lucas has already gone into them in, in, in many depth all these social harms i'm sure will come on to as well um so there that's two examples luke might have a, uh, another answer to this question i'm not sure no i, th- I think um briefly going going back to the to the gangs thing and and kind of how we talk about violence more generally i think nowhere in the book do we deny the fact that violence devastates communities and nowhere do we deny the kind of moral responsibility of individuals for com- committing the acts that they that they do but the angle from which we talk is what kind of society is is conducive to peace and well-being and love and care for and between young people and those kinds of awareness campaigns and, and media stories tend to almost bracket out society. So the, the problem isn't the way that the adults have organized society. The problem is this kind of malevolence among young people, which is somewhat in, inexplicable, or it's just a kind of explained away with a one phrase answer, like it's just the gangs or it's the drill music or it's the troubled families. Yeah. And that that's convenient for media articles that have to push a certain kind of narrative but it's potentially very damaging in terms of how young people and adults perceive the issue. Yeah. And if I could just round that off as well, Luke, I think like one really powerful or convincing way of, of conceptualizing that is when you look globally or internationally at different societies and you see it's those societies with low levels of social harm that have relatively low levels of violence. So, it's not that it's not that societies that are relatively safe have got some really amazing awareness campaigns going on and some really great gang interventions going on. You know, those tend to be the societies that have higher levels of violence. The societies that are safe and good for young people are ones where there's relatively low uh, levels and types of social harm. And that's also where um, there's relatively low levels of violence. And kind of we go into why we think that's the case um, further in the book as well. It's so complicated and yet so obvious and simple, isn't it? in some ways and I'm personally interested in this because I have a 13 year old son obviously at secondary school and you do you wonder how much they I know they talk to them a little bit about violence and stuff at school but you never quite know exactly how and exactly how they're framing it how does looking at 
violence um, against young people from the social harm perspective actually help us change our responses to it and so improve our chances of successfully addressing it? I think just very briefly, again, like on a very basic level, what, what we talk about as social harm is kind of in, in two, two categories. There's interpersonal harms. So if I punch Kira in the face, that's an interpersonal form of harm. And then there's structural harms. So that there's harms that undermine somebody's well-being or their flourishing in a, in a manner which derives from certain kinds of policies or institutions. So if Keir gets excluded from school in an entirely unfair manner, you can say that that might, may derive from the, the policies and the, and the practices of that institution. And, and therefore, that's a, a structural form of harm. And both need careful attention. If we're to make our society better, but also if we were to reduce interpersonal harms between young people, if a young person commits a violent act at the age of 17 and we trace back their life, it's quite likely that there may be some interpersonal harm there. They may be a victim of violence themselves or a victim of different kinds of exploitation. Um, there may be violence in the, in the home when they're young. We know that quite often adverse childhood experiences can make violence more likely. But there's also like likely to be a whole series of structural harms in there as well, maybe within the education system, maybe within the care system. And sometimes that might be directly harmful acts of of, of um, kind of institutionalized violence in some cases. In other cases, it's forms of kind of systemic neglect. So a young person's additional educational needs not being met in school, for instance. So by looking at kind of structural harms as well as interpersonal harms, I think you get a fuller picture of what's going on in any individual's life and what's going on in any community mm-hmm. in order to think about how, how to make things better for those people, one consequence of which would be reduced levels of violence between young people. In, in the book, we talk about social harms as being something that compromises human flourishing um, in a manner that could have been prevented. And human flourishing has these two components where one, one is like subjective well-being. So how people think about their lives, how people feel, people's sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. And then the other thing is about need fulfillment. So um, people's needs being met for housing, um, for for food, for shelter, um, for education and learning and so on. Um, And so all those things that Luke was talking about, in one sense or another, they undermine human flourishing, um, either on both of those components or, or, or one in particular. And, and we think social harm is important, kind of the link between social harm and violence. I think that we haven't really gone into too much yet, but is is really kind of a significant part of the book is that there's this psychosocial concept called mattering. And our, our argument crudely put is that the more social harm you have in a young person's life, the more this is likely to make them feel as though they don't matter. And we know that when young people don't matter, they're more predisposed to violence. So that, that's very crudely put. Luke is the... Um, definitely the the kind of deeper thinker on mattering he's the one that wrote most of the mattering uh material in the book so i'm not sure if you wanted to add anything to that luke to my crude um summary of it i think just very briefly firstly it's, it's not a concept that we originated so um there's a american psychologist called gordon flett um, another called isaac prolotensky another called gordon elliott who were the three kind of big thinkers in psychology talking about mattering mm-hmm. um, but ultimately what what it comes down to is the extent to which an individual feels kind of significant to other people and the extent to which an individual feels like they've got some kind of influence in the world so yeah. it, it can be a helpful term for referring to different kinds of sense of status belonging respect but then also a sense of kind of power and agency and so on and when you look at the effects of a lot of the social harms that i mentioned and that we look at one of the key things that they do, one of the key effects that they have is giving people an utterly diminished sense of kind of social presence, a sense of being disposable or invisible or being utterly insignificant. 
and we we know that then the desperation to gain a, a sense of power or a sense of significance can be um, a precipitant of violence and right. it can also tie in with a sense of nihilism as well yeah. um, so we, we we quote a few young people themselves um or and like youth workers who who um are kind of young adults who, who are thinking deeply about this and they talk about how if you've got a incredibly reduced sense of your own meaningfulness that can undermine the extent to which you see the kind of world as containing meaning or other people as containing value and okay. that, that, that kind of nihilism is quite a self-destructive or other destructive state of mind to to get into and i think that in in, in certain cases that's a significant issue for young people which can have all kinds of devastating con consequences but including interpersonal violence yeah it makes a lot of sense when you talk about it like that and I think the thing I'm taking away from this conversation is just the need to not take depictions of youth violence at any kind of face value and look at the actual human beings in context, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think especially because like nonsense about young people has a very, very long history. I mean, yeah. there's that cliched thing about, you know, you go back to the time of Plato and they're complaining about the younger generations and stuff like that. But I think more importantly in this country, something we talk about in the book is the quite specific history of demonizing young people, especially since the kind of Victorian era, where when there's this kind of idea of Britain as this kind of great, inherently just, peaceful, almost kind of pristine social order. Mm. And therefore, any social problems, they're caused by others that that must be the foreigners or that's the poor people yeah. or that's the young people kind of polluting things yeah and so, and so again that draws attention to individuals as if they're kind of inherently dysfunctional rather than drawing attention to well in the victorian era the the nature of industrialization and the development of capitalism at that time was utterly devastating for communities and individuals in all kinds of different ways Mm. in a manner which clearly generated different kinds of social malady and social problem um and yet at the time you you, you see the beginning of, beginnings of this idea that kind of poverty is a kind of bread problem rather than having anything to do with political economy yeah this, this idea that kind of gangs of youths or poor people in this country can be kind of conceptually grouped with savages abroad and obviously the colonialism of the time is really significant in all of this so i think yeah. it's all of this is a particular problem because it's not just that, you know, tabloids have been saying crap about young people in the last few years. It's that for a very long time, deeply in, entrenched in our society have been these notions about young people or other kinds of other causing all the problems that we have, rather than there being attention to the fact that it's fundamental features of our society that are driving many, many of these problems. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that othering thing, but it does apply to young people just as much as it does to what well what we do to other groups as well, doesn't it? It's really dehumanising as well, the way we talk about young people because of the not seeing them as individuals. And Yeah, yeah. and I think that's part of the um, part of the gang discourse as well, is like flattening all the human relationships mm. and flattening all the individuals as if mm. like an individual is nothing and then they're kind of magnetized into this thing called a gang. And then everyone in the gang is completely the same. And all their relationships are completely the same. And, and then, all their backgrounds are completely yeah. the same and their experiences. And, yeah. And they just become a kind of generic collective. And yeah. a kind of academic friend of ours, Tara Young, has done loads of brilliant work on friendship 
and friendships between young people and all the different complexities, obviously in any friendship between two young people, but including those who are kind of labeled as gang involved, mm. there's this infinite complexity there. But then because of things said on WhatsApp or because of certain kind of music that's being listened to by a young person, they're just all kind of grouped together as as a gang. It's just, they're all this kind of malevolent plotting yeah. going on between them all the time. And that leads to young people being put in prison for a long time, aside from any of the kind of issues with demonization. Um, many listeners might be aware of the recent joint enterprise case in Manchester that led to 10 young people being in, imprisoned. And some of the evidence was a few messages on WhatsApp. Right. So these issues aren't just kind of always oh, in the media crap, although that's that's true. Th- these these narratives are there in courtrooms. These narratives are, are there in the criminal justice system. Um, and certainly it is, as you say, it's dehumanizing. And it's very clearly the case that that othering of young people is not applied equally. If, if it's young people who um, come from black and global majority backgrounds, yeah. if it's young people who come from poorer backgrounds, if it's young people whose family background isn't fully conventional in some kind of manner, if yeah. it's young people from, who, who are care experienced, then the, the degree of demonization and dehumanization, not just in the media, but in the criminal justice system and education system and elsewhere is far more considerable. Yeah, absolutely. Just to finish off and to try and kind of leave people with something to take away and do, I wanted to go back to that point about um, not wanting to make young people fearful and anxious and making them realise that there is hope and in the world. So how do you think we, we should talk to young people about violence? Um, I think, firstly, it, it has to not be fear-mongering. We, ca- we, we can't be inducing panic in in young people obviously there's there's conversations with young people obviously about um risks and dangers in the world um and how they can navigate those but i think fundamentally the most important thing for a young person is the relationships around them if we can encourage young people to be able to form rich meaningful trusting relationships with their peers and with adults which contain different kinds of mutual support and care then that's one of the best things we can do to help keep young people safe. Because then if they are coming across risks or they're worried about things, they've got people to talk to that they trust. They've got people to get support from. Mm-hmm. Another consequence of a lot of these social harms we've been mentioning is undermining human relationships, under, un, undermining the, the mutual trust and care between people. And when I think about young people that I work with, the thing that keeps them safest is having other brilliant young people in their lives who they get that kind of mutual support from and then mm-hmm. having great teachers or great youth workers or great uncles or great family support around them. And so I think the best thing we can do is nurture those relationships with young people and encourage them to nurture those kinds of friendships. I completely agree with that, Luke. I think I think there's two things I'd add to it. The, the first is that if, you, if you're going to talk to children, and young people specifically about violence, I think it, it's one thing to talk about the kind of severity and the tragic consequences that can flow from violence. And I think that that done carefully is something that um, can be useful broadly speaking but it's this it's the scale that you don't want to exaggerate and I think too often kind of campaigns are so simplistic that it's really the kind of prevalence and scale that they're highlighting more than the actual impact that violence has and I think that's really important because again we don't want to spread fear and anxiety that there's more violence out there than there really is because that's counterproductive and then the, the other thing I'd say is, is just to go back to this um, kind of awareness raising campaigns 
via talking to people it's, it's really we we need to be talking to adults more about it so the, the awareness raising in the campaign needs to be directed towards people like politicians people working in the media because it's, it's changes needed there rather than from young people themselves that will be more helpful because okay. when you get society right when you get media right and you know everything else around that we won't have to worry about young people carrying knives and being violent towards one another because they'll be living in safer societies with hope and opportunity and you know this doesn't become an issue and so kind of this this kind of direct line to go and talk to young people you know there's a problem with youth violence we need to go and talk to young people like it's it's a misconception in itself i think it's yes. kind of a wrong a wrong step initially like we should be looking upwards at the adults around them and the people in power who are the ones that really we need to change uh, the minds and the kind of actions of that's a really good point and a really good point to finish on thank you luke thank you Kia. If people are interested in finding out a bit more about this, you can have a look or buy the book. It's called Against Youth Violence. It's by Luke Billingham and Keir Arwin Rogers. Um, and you can find out more on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.